Just as a disclaimer, we want you to know that some of the movies that we will be reviewing were shot in a different time and era where people of race and sex were not treated equally. We understand this and hope you do too. The movies or anything that happened on the sets are not the views of this podcast or what this show is intended to be all about. Exactly. And we want to give due diligence in presenting the movie and not the views of the cast or directors or anyone involved. But we also feel it's necessary to let the audience know some of the background information to get a feel for what was happening at the time of shooting the film. Again, we hope you understand that we do not agree with everything that went on and we just want to give out the information. And with that being said, hope you enjoy the show. Welcome back to The Tragedy of Cinema, Episode 9. Part 2. Part 2 of Con with the Wind. Um, like we said in previous, this was a long movie, so we broke it up into two parts. And uh, But this one, we can just jump right into the facts. We're not going to do any silliness questions or anything. And then we'll do our reviews and some shout-outs at the end of the movie. Or movie. <laughs> at the end of the podcast. <laughs> so, Terrence, are you ready to get into it? Let's do it. Or continue into it? Hattie McDowell was... Our McDaniel was criticized by some African Americans for playing in a supposedly racist film. She responded that she would rather make $700 a week playing a maid than $7 being a real one. Touche. For the scene in which Scarlett escapes the burning of the Atlanta depot, a horse was needed to play Wobegon, an old nag on the verge of collapse. A suitable candidate was finally found, but weeks later, when the horse was brought to the set, it had gained weight and its ribs were no longer visible. There was no time to find a replacement, so the makeup department painted dark shadows on its ribs to give the appearance of malnourishment. I'm glad they were able to just paint it just to... Yeah, I wonder if these guys <laughs> wish, you know, the directors wish, you know, if they knew now about CGI and all that, how easier yeah. it would have been on them. Leslie Howard was one of the few cast members who did not attend the premiere in Atlanta. He returned to England before the premiere due to the outbreak of World War II because he served in the British intelligence. Interesting. It's the second actor that I know that has served in in British intelligence. Of all the many actresses who tested for the part of Scarlett, only Paulette Goddard and Vivian Leigh were filmed in color. Hmm. The film had its first preview on September 9, 1939 at the Fox Theater in Riverside, California. In attendance were David O. Selznick, his wife Irene Mayer Selznick, investor John Hay Whitney, and editor Hal C. Kern. Kern called for the manager and explained that his theater had been chosen for the first public screening of this film. Although the identity of the film must remain undisclosed to the audience until the very moment it began. People were permitted to leave only if they didn't want to hang around for a film that they didn't know the name of. But after they had gone to the theater, it was supposed to be sealed off with no readmission and no phone calls. The manager was reluctant but eventually agreed. His one request was to call his wife to come to the theater immediately, although he was forbidden to tell her what film she was about to see. Indeed, Kern stood by him while he made his phone call to ensure he maintained his secret. When the film began, the audience started yelling with excitement. They had been reading about this film for nearly two years, so they were naturally thrilled to see it for themselves. 
Here's an, yeah, that's interesting. It's another film that we're covering that is very secret as far as you know the opening and everything. Right. It's to the point where you don't even know what you're getting. Well, ready to watch. And, and reading that kind of reminds me of like when uh, you go see a new Star Wars and it goes down yeah. to Lucasfilm pops up and everybody just starts. Oh, that's either. true. <laughs> I mean, it's really hard nowadays to keep anything film a secret because everything either gets social leaked media or social. Just... Yeah, it kind of kills like the secrecy of anything. Michael Jackson reportedly paid over $1.5 million in 1999 to purchase David O'Sullivan's Best Picture Oscar for Gone with the Wind. Wow. I'm not surprised, but I mean, wow. Stupid money. I mean, you know. <laughs> as Scarlett is described in the book as having green eyes, Vivian Leigh's eye color was manually corrected in post-production from their natural blue to green. Huh. Contrary to popular belief, this is not the first word to, uh, film to use the word doof. The explicitive was it used in numerous silent and inner, inner t- intertitles in several talkies, including Cavalcade 1933 and Pigmalon in 1938. The latter was a British film not subject to American strictures. Wait, what? Like, what's the letter of the the, the, the four letter word here? Well, what's the famous one from the movie? Frankly, Scarlet. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. all right. So, there are more than fifty speaking roles and two thousand four hundred extras in this film. Hmm. I mean, that's a lot of people. Female costumes were made complete with petticoats, although they wouldn't have been missed had they not been there. In 2007, the American Film Institute ranked this as the sixth, number six greatest movie of all time. The scene where Scarlett makes a dress out of a curtain later was spoofed on The Carol Burnett Show in 1967 in what became one of the most memorable comedy bits in TV history. Carol Burnett starred as Starlet O'Hara wears the curtains with the rod still in them. <laughs> Harvey Corman as Rat Butler says, Starlet, that gun is lovely, to which she responds, Thank you, I just saw it in the window and I couldn't resist it. <laughs> Actually, I sat down and watched this last night. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, it's funny. If you haven't seen it, you need to see it. I feel like I've seen that in other gags. Like, I feel like it's still a timeless gag that you don't know where it comes from, but it's still funny. But you need to see this one. This yeah, no, really I definitely funny. will. So if anybody wants to see just go to YouTube, type in uh, Gone with the Wind, uh, Carol Burnett, it'll pop up. To portray Melanie, Olivia de Havilland spent most of the film in drab, dowdy costumes. She wore two elaborate dresses in the film, one when Melanie and Ashley announced their engagement and a striking blue taffeta dress that Melanie wears to Scarlett's first wedding. Unfortunately, due to film aspect ratio at the time, long before the advent of um, widescreen, the screen could not accommodate two dresses built up with hoop skirts, so they had to be removed. Thus, de Havilland's rare appearance in a beautiful dress was shot from the waist up, and the skirt hanging limp. Huh. Unlike the innocent character of Melanie Hamilton, Olivia de Havilland was known to have a wicked sense of humor. For example, during a take of Rhett Butler having to carry Melanie to the carriage to leave Atlanta during its siege, de Havilland had her body fastened to the set, so Clark Gable almost threw out his back trying to lift her. Oof. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just some of the pranks you see pulled on other characters in the movies are pretty funny. Oh, yeah. Judy Garland was the leading contender for the role of Scarlet's sister, Karen, or Karen, before her Andy Hardy series co-star Anne Rutherford was cast, but she was tied up with commitments to another film directed by Victor Fleming, hmm. which was The Wizard, the Wizard of Oz. Oz. Um, Fleming would replace George Kukar in both The Wizard of Oz and this film. Margaret Mitchell's first choice to play Rhett Butler was Basil Rathbone. So here, on that on that last one... Uh, with Judy Garland, I wonder, like, how different things would have turned out for her if she went with Gone with the Wind instead. I don't think she would have been as famous as she was. That's true too. Because I think The Wizard of Oz was her most iconic role, and what she's probably most famous for. Yeah. 
The sequence that is commonly referred to as the Burning of Atlanta was not the actual burning of the city by General William T. Sherman in November 1864. Instead, the scene represents the night two months earlier when the retreating Confederate Army torched its ammunition dumps to keep the Union Army from capturing them. Billy Burke, best remembered today as Glenda the Good Witch of the Wizard of Oz, was considered for Aunt Pity Pat Hamilton, but the producer thought she was too young. She was 54 years old. Wow. Here you go, Terrence. You're going to get a kick out of this one. Half a million feet of film was shot. This was all edited down to 20,000 feet. Only 20,000. Half a million that feet. That is insane. All seven of Hollywood's then-existing Technicolor cameras were used to film the burning of the Atlanta Depot. Flames 500 feet high leaped from a set that covered 40 acres. Ten pieces of fire equipment from the Los Angeles Fire Department, 50 studio firemen, and 200 studio helpers stood by throughout the film of this sequence in case the fire should get out of hand. Three 5,000-gallon water tanks were used to quench the flames after shooting. Wow. The reminiscent wounded soldier in the makeshift Atlanta hospital talking to nurses Scarlett and Melanie after his brother Jeff was played by Cliff Edwards. Edwards later provided the voice of Jiminy Cricket in Walt Disney's timeless classic Pinocchio in 1940 and introduced the Academy Award winning song When You Wish Upon a Star. Hmm. Edwards is only heard, not seen as the reminiscent soldier in this film. Interesting. Although he played Brent Tarleton in the film, the screen credits mistakenly list Fred Crane as playing Stuart Tarleton, who was played by George Reeves. So they flipped him in the credits. <laughs> Not like, really, everything else you were dedicated to, but you can't right. get him right. A few of Margaret Mitchell's working titles for the novel included Tomorrow is Another Day, Not in Our, Not in Our Stars, Bugle Sang True, and Tote the Weary Load. But the most famous working title was Baba Black Sheep. <laughs> There is an unresolved subplot in the novel. Brothel Madame Belle Whiteling has a son whose existence to ke- his, his existence is kept secret for some reason. He is studying away from Atlanta. He is implied to have some significance, but remains an unseen character. Rep Butler is also involved with another unseen character, a young boy who serves as his legal ward. Rep frequently visits uh, New Orleans where the boy is studying. One solution to the identity of the boys is that they are the same character, implying a stronger connection between parent figures Rhett Butler and Bell Watling. I will say, you know, when you have a novel as long as Gone with the Wind, or even like a movie, both in this case, uh, there's going to be some loose ends that don't get tied in the end. Uh, It's almost inevitable when you have something that long. When Melanie says that Bonnie's eyes are as blue as the Bonnie blue flag... She was referring to the popular name of the single star session flag that was flown over Georgia after it seceded from the Union, as well as other states that did so. Hmm. Consisted of a single white star over a field of blue, tradition holds that it flew over Georgia for the first few months of 1861 before being replaced by the better-known stars and bars, mimic cry of the U.S. flag, and battle flag, the X-shaped cross flag that has caused such controversy because of its white supremacy implications that became the Confederate flags of later years. Vivian Leigh's daughter was attending private school in Vancouver, British Columbia, when the movie premiered there on February 16, 1940. She was at the Vancouver premiere, though unannounced, at her mother's insistence. Hmm. Because I can only imagine what they would, you know, they'd harass her trying to get her to, you know, all that. absolutely. Robert Young, Douglas Fairbanks Jr., Lou Ayers, Ayers, William Bakewell, and Ray Milland all auditioned for the part of Ashley Wilkes. Selznick liked Melvin Douglas' test very much, but considered the actor too beefy for the role. (laughs) Too beefy. 
Too macho. <laughs> yeah. In the first hospital scene, the wounded Confederate uh, says he lost track of his brother after the Battle of Bull Run. The Confederates referred to those two battles as Manassas, never as Bull Run. Yankees named many battles after bodies of water. Southerners named battles after towns or features of the land. Interesting. That's a, that's a fact I didn't know. Before casting had actually started, Margaret Mitchell was asked during an interview who she felt should play Rhett Butler. She replied, Groucho Marx. This was obviously a joke in her way of reiterating that she wanted nothing to do with the making of the film. <laughs> the estimated production costs were $3.9 million. At the time, only Ben-Hur, A Tale of Christ, 1925, and one other movie had a greater cost. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. The Terra Plantation facade was located at the northwest corner of the 40-acre backlot in Culver City, California, and was dismantled in 1959. The location was later used for Stalag 13 outdoor set of the famous TV show Hogan's Heroes in 1965. Hmm. Do you know what Hogan's Heroes is? That's actually, I've never heard of that. You, you've never seen Hogan's Heroes? No, not at all. It was a TV show about a World, I think it was World War II or World War I uh, yeah. concentration camp. Interesting. It's a comedy. Really? Hilarious. There's, they, um, they could escape anytime they wanted, but they stayed there and got intelligence. Really? I'll have to show it to you here in a little bit. Huh. You'll, you'll I think the, the only um, World War II like, old comedy that I watched was MASH. Stop. I know. Stop. You said MASH was World War II? All right, I'm sorry. Uh, you know what I mean. <laughs> These people are going to just get I know. They're gonna, I'm, I'm Millennials. Sorry, guys. <laughs> Uh, I'm tired. Hey, it's not my hey. fault. Well, hey, you got to have a little comedy in the podcast. Thanks for bringing it today, Terrence. <laughs> the film's script changed almost daily, and the cast did not receive a final version of the script until after the film was completed. Huh. So they were still getting yeah. scripts, and the film was already <laughs> done. In June 2008, the film was ranked number four on the American Film Institute's list of the ten greatest films in the genre epic. Opinions in the... Am- African-American community were generally divided upon the release of the film. Some termed it racist, and there were protests against several cities. Others spoke out in favor of Hattie McDaniel's warm and witty characterization, feeling that the film featured a strong African-American character. Others were more ambivalent about the actual depiction of African-Americans in the film, but felt that the use of African-American actors in prominent roles could lead to increased visibility on screen for other black actors. It makes sense. I mean, they're both right. It very much doesn't depict how things were, but at the same time, it did open the door a little bit. You know, that was the start of... I mean, we had one of the first Oscar winners. Yeah. Uh, African-American. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, it did... It really, you know, put African Americans on the forefront, and um, you know, things went from there. But you know, I was just especially thinking, that around that time, it was so hard. So it was, it's still an amazing feat. I, I was just thinking, going back to the Wizard of Oz, I I don't know if there was a person of color in that movie. There wasn't. No, I thought that I not unless there was a Munchkin or some in the background. You know what I mean? But yeah. nothing sticks out to me. I mean, that's why the Wiz was created. Well, that's true. And, uh, uh, did, I, did I say that? Yes, yes, yeah, you yeah. did. Because <laughs> that's how you see that I, before I the just, Wizard of Oz. I love that movie. I really do love that movie. <laughs> the only four actors David O. Selznick ever seriously considered for the role of Rep Butler was Clark Gable, Gary Cooper, Earl Flynn, and Ronald Coleman. Hmm. When Alicia Rett, who played India, the daughter of John Wilkes, died less than one month before her 99th birthday on January 3rd, 2014, Olivia de Havilland became the last surviving cast member of this movie. 
This is quite an accomplishment considering the film had over 50 speaking parts. On July 1st, 2015, when she turned 99, she also became the cast member with the greatest longevity. Hey, that's a nice ripe old age. <laughs> yeah. You know? None of the interior sets had ceilings. These and the upper parts of many exteriors were uh, optically added or modified with matte paintings. Hmm. This is the most notable noticeable in the to the modern discerning eye in the last shot of the scene showing the many dead and wounded Confederate soldiers. The tattered Confederate flag clearly seen in the astonishing pullback crane shot blowing in the breeze is now represented by matte painting hanging limp. Production began with Robert Glecker playing Jonas Wilkerson. After a month of filming, Glecker died. His scenes were reshot with replacement cast member Victor Jory. Hmm. The 222-minute running time excludes the overture music played before the credits, the intra-act music played during the intermission, and the exit music played after the film's end. All three were especially recorded for the soundtrack and were heard at the film's original 1939 world premiere. Cinematographer Lee Gar- Arms was fired a month into production because his footage was deemed to be too dark. He was replaced <laughs> by Ernest Haller and Ray Renahan. That's funny. David O. Selznick originally wanted Lionel Barry to play Dr. Mead, but Barrymore's severe arthritis had just confined him to a wheelchair and he was unable to take on a physical part. Wow. Yeah. The Margaret Mitchell estate had maintained the rights to Gone with the Wind and related work since the death of the original author. The family of Margaret Mitchell maintained control of the estate until the death of the last member, Joseph Mitchell, in 2011. At his will, Joseph left much of his fortune and 50% of the estate to the Roman Catholic Archdiocese of Atlanta. Huh. If the number of total admissions are calculated, this is the most popular movie of all time in the U.S. with over 200 million tickets sold. Wow. In the U.S. I mean, I, I think that just goes to show how popular the book was. For, right, because to, I mean, if, if this if people didn't read the book, they wouldn't go, you know clamor to see the movie as but much. I, but as I that. also wonder if there was anybody that went to see them more than once in the theater. I, I mean, absolutely. I mean, if you were a fan of the book, then nine times out of ten you watch the movie, and it's you know it, it, it's a huge, iconic movie. It was out of the uh, right out the get go. It was popular, and it still is popular. So I wouldn't be surprised if people watched it multiple times. Right. People have done it for less. <laughs> <laughs> in May 2008, the two leads ranked number seven on movie phones, the top 25 sexiest movie couples. Huh. The final shooting script dated January 24, 1939, had a price tag of $25,000 by late 1939. Ooh, wow. That's a steep price just for the script. Yeah. That's just the last page. Yeah. Or no, I guess it's the whole script. Yeah. Was voted the eighth greatest film of all time by Entertainment Weekly. As you can see, uh, as we're going through this, it, it ranges from number one to number six to number four to number yeah. eight, but just by different polls. Depending on who's talking about it and, and that's, that's what quite, you're looking at about it. It's yeah. quite rare back in the day because everybody has different opinions and tastes, but you can tell that this is still in the top ten no matter where you look. Pretty much. The first film to credit a production designer mainly to highlight the major contribution from William Cameron Menzies who was not only the art director, but also directed some of the second units. Despite the lack of a sequel novel at the time, David O. Selznick and metro Golden mayer were always interested in creating a sequel to the film. And I don't know if a sequel would have been nearly as good. No. They did come out with one in, I think, 1991. Because, well, I mean, they did kind of leave the ending a little open-ended yeah. when she wanted to, uh, you know, get win the love of her husband back, but... He's like, yeah, yeah. He's like, he's like, you can only love yourself or whatever. Exactly. So, 
The chapters with the Ku Klux Klan from the book are glossed over in the movie. When the men, Ashley and Rhett, disguise themselves and engage in that ambush, we're not aware that they're dressed up like Klan members. Huh. How could you not? They kind of I, I didn't even know that myself. Tala Bankhead reportedly turned down the role of Belle Watling. When Rhett bids $150 to dance with Scarlet, the crowd's cheer is the same one heard when Dr. Mead announced the auction. <laughs> so they just used the, <laughs> the same cheering. You recycle it. Why not? Uh, one of the first promising candidates for the role of Scarlet was Adele Longmire, who was only 17 at the time. Her parents did not permit her to travel to New York for a screen test, so she did not appear in any film until several years later. Hmm. Among the actresses considered for the part of Scarlet, there's some famous ones in here. I don't know if you'll know them, but uh, were Jean Arthur, Lucille Ball. Do you know who Lucille Ball is? Yeah. From I Love Lucy? Yeah. Miriam Hopkins, Tala Bankhead, Betty Davis. Okay, yeah. Claudette Colbert, Joan Crawford. Yep. Uh, Loretta Young, Paula Go- Paulette Goddard, Catherine Hepburn. Wow. Olivia de Havilland, who played Melanie. Uh, Carol Lombard, Norma Shear, Barbara Stanswick, and Margaret Sullivan. Bankhead, an authentic Southern belle from Alabama, was the clear frontrunner, but her unsavory personal life made producers reluctantly are reluctant to hire. Interesting. So you can just uh, quite the lineup, man. I mean, it'd be yes. Yeah. How would how would Lucille <laughs> Ball's you know change? I mean, her popularity, right? Despite the popularity of the novel, Margaret Mitchell was not interested in producing the sequel. The first authorized sequel, Scarlet, by Alexandria Ripley, was not published until 1991. Oh, there you go. This was cinematographer Ernest Holler's first color film. As an actor in Britain, Vivian Leigh read Gone with the Wind and decided that the role of Scarlet was one she had to do. So, there you go. Set her mind to it and... She went after it. Yep. At one point, five film units were shooting scenes. Directors involved were Sam Wood, Sidney Franklin, and stunt coordinator Yakima Canute. David O. Selznick traveled to Bermuda in September 1938 to finalize the script. He reportedly brought four suitcases full of drafts with him. Wow. Uh, Bellboy, can you (laughs) bring me my suitcase? Writer Sidney Howard was paid $2,000 a week to do the screenplay. Many other writers contributed to the final script, with the final sum paid to every one of them being $126,000. However, received or Howard received sole screen credit. David O. Selznick also wrote much of the screenplay. At one point before shooting uh, began, novelist F. Scott Fitzgerald was brought in to assist to rewrite some of the script. Although he was quickly fired. <laughs> you see that a lot back then. A lot You're right. Break, a lot hey, of people just kind of come in, in and, all right, see ya. David O. Selznick was required to give MGM the distribution rights in exchange for the use of Clark Gable and $1.250 million in financing. It came first in the UK's Ultimate Film, in which films were placed in order of how many seats they sold at cinemas, with an estimated two-thirds of the UK's population going to see it. Wow. Holy cow. Two-thirds. Of the population that's, in the UK. That's crazy. One criticism of the film is that it removes several negative aspects of Southern society and culture described in the novel, providing a more romanticized, some even say sanitized, version of the Old South and its source material. Here we go. Ready for this? Yep. Vincent Price, Jeffrey Lynn, Dennis Morgan, Douglas Montgomery, Wayne Morris, and Melvin Douglas tested for the part of Ashley. Wow. Vincent Price would be so interesting. <laughs> Especially since you know what he's known for now. Exactly. You know what I mean? 
Sidney Howard agreed to write the screenplay, but from his home in Massachusetts, 3,000 miles away from studio interference, his first draft would have made a 5.5-hour film. Ooh. Vivian Leigh famously tightened her corset to 18 inches. Oof. Many actresses who attempted this in later films, most noticeably Nicole Kidman and Moulin Rouge in 2001, injured themselves severely by cracking their ribs. Yeah, that's... That's, that, that's crazy. It's too tight. <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised no one passed out on set. The old mill at T.R. Pugh Memorial Park in North Little Rock, Arkansas, is featured in the opening scenes and is believed to be the only remaining building from the film. Wow. Okay. I mean, that makes sense. It's been a long time. Victory Jory, Rand Brooks, and George Reeves would all at various times appear in the Hopalong Cassidy, William Boyd Westerns in the 1940s. Mickey Coon, who played Bew Wilkes, uh, Wilkes, kept blowing a scene by calling Clark Gable Clark instead of Rhett. Gable eventually took him aside and explained that he was Clark in real life, but on this set, his name was Rhett. On the next take, <laughs> Coon got the scene right. That's hilarious. You know what? That happens sometimes, most notably from my memory. Uh, it happened a lot in Rush Hour. Like, you look at the bloopers. Uh, uh, it was... Um, Chris Tucker and Jackie Chan, like Chris Tucker kept, all right, Jackie, oh crap, and then he, oh, Jackie, oh, no, 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 he's like, no, that's not my name. Mm-hmm. It's hilarious. This was originally the longest film to be preserved at the National Film Registry until Flash Gordon in 1936 broke its record seven years later. Breaking its own records. The novel has been translated into over 70 languages and has a large international readership. That makes sense. The fictional character Scarlet from the G.I. Joe franchise created in 1982 is named after Scarlet O'Hara. Her real name is Shayna O'Hara, and she is from Atlanta. That's great. I know. I love it when they throw call back to my childhood. You know <laughs> As of now, this is the longest movie ever made with over um, 100,000 votes on IMDb. Oh, wow. That's a lot of votes. Included among the 1001 movies you must see before you die. So another one that's... I just find it funny, though. Why did they say 1,001? Why didn't they just stop at, like, 1,000? I know, right? Uh, kind of like little OCD popping off. Film, Why couldn't it be do, you, even? do you remember who Roger and Ebert were? Uh, or Cisco and Ebert? They were two movie critics that used to have their own TV show, and they were rural. They were famous. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. But this film is included on Roger Ebert's greatest movies list. Hmm. So many tests were made for the part of Scarlett that Selznick ended up with some 24 hours of film. During production, George Besselow, one of the Tarleton boys at the beginning that was Scarlet's view, changed his name to George Reeves and later become the screen's first Superman. That's awesome. Clark Gable was so distressed over the requirement that he cry on film when Melanie is comforting Red after Scarlet's miscarriage that he almost quit. Olivia de Havilland and director Victor Fleming convinced him to stay. Because he was a macho man. <laughs> macho, macho Stop, just man. stop. I was snapping to a Slim Jim over there. Uh, three of the four principal actors, Leslie Howard, Vivian Lee, and Clark Gable, died at relatively young ages. Olivia de Havilland outlived them all by at least 40 years and is the only one who remains alive as of 2018. Ironically, her character is the only one who dies in the film. Hmm. That's interesting. I, I wanna. That's that's the age I want to get to. I want to get to the age where you're just trying to outlive everybody you know. Sitting get us full bucket records for being the longest. Of the, the movie's line, frankly, my dear, I don't give a doof, was voted as the number one movie quote by the American Film Institute out of 100. The closing line, after all, tomorrow is another day, was number 31 on the AFI's list of movie quotes. As God is my witness, I'll never be hungry again, was number 59 on the list. 
Only Casablanca has more quotes on the list. That makes sense. Casablanca is another really quotable movie. After Ashley Wilkes is carried into his room from a night at Bell's place, Melanie picks up a lamp with an electric cord attached. <laughs> <laughs> when trying to get Doc Mead, Scarlet runs past several lampposts containing electric bulbs. See, some of the stuff wasn't wouldn't have been invented uh, yeah, from the Civil War. Exactly. When Scarlet visits the lumber mill, we see a saw cutting lumber. The roar of an electric motor can be heard quite clearly. <laughs> it's a little mistakes. That oh yeah, yeah, we're getting into some mistakes. After the list comes out at Gettysburg Casualties, the band plays Dixie. The camera settles on the two Fife players, but their finger movements do not match the music that they're supposed to be playing. Hmm. In the opening shot of Scarlet and the Tarleton Twins on Terrace front porch, the shadow of the boom mic is clearly visible on the pillow on the porch swing behind Scarlet. Watch it rise as the trio stands. <laughs> when Scarlet is singing after her night with Red, a boom mic shadow is visible on the right top corner of her pillow. There's a shadow on the right-hand white door when Scarlet leaves the makeshift hospital. Mammy mistakenly says John Wilkinson's instead of John Wilkes in her famous line, I ain't aiming for you to go to Mr. John Wilkinson's and eat like a filled hand and gobble like a hog. The barbecue was held at the home of John Wilkes, not Jonas, Jonas Wilkerson, the overseer. Hmm. And there's a there's a lot more of these mistakes. Um, most notably, like their mouths don't match up with the sound. But I was yeah. not. I was. I mean, you can see my notes. I scribbled it out because we would be here till yeah Sunday. <laughs> I, I will say, uh, boom mics are tricky. Yeah. Very tricky because they got to be close, but they also have to be out of shot. So sometimes that happens. At the beginning of the film, there is a huge oak tree outside Terrace front door. After the war, and the Yankees have burned everything, the tree is gone. When the war is over, the tree returns in all its glory. <laughs> <laughs> When Red kisses Scarlet goodbye right before he enlists, he drops his hat on the ground. He kisses her and picks it up from the top of fence post. <laughs> when Scarlet flees Atlanta, she is barehanded, uh, bareheaded. As she and Red ride through the depot, she is wearing a black bonnet. And the next scene on the road to Terra, the bonnet disappears. After the Charlton twins tell Scarlet of Ashley's impending marriage to Melanie on the porch of Terra, during the famous scene where Scarlet runs down the driveway, the Charlton twins disappear from the porch in the long shot. Hmm. When Scarlet is attacked on the bridge, her hat disappears and reappears between shots. Before Scarlet, Rhett, Prissy, and Melanie leave for Tara, Scarlet's hair is messed up. It's neater when she gets into the wagon. When they stop so Rhett can leave, her hair is almost is almost neat. When she arrives at home, it's messy again. <laughs> Mammy, Pork, and Prissy are standing in front of a big new mansion in Atlanta, and Prissy exclaims about how rich they are now. Prissy never appears in the movie again. Hmm. I didn't notice. I mean, there's so many characters. Oh, there is. When Scarlet meets Frank Kennedy at the hospital, a water pitcher appears out of nowhere. <laughs> when Rhett takes Bonnie's blue, Bonnie Blue out of her crib right after she is born, we can briefly see Bonnie's forehead and eyes, which are clearly that of a doll. Hmm. And the wide shot showing hundreds of soldiers lying on the ground and waiting for a medic near the hospital... Only half of them were actual extras. The other half were just dummies. Many of them can clearly be seen even pretty close to the camera. When Scarlet and Melanie are nursing the wounded soldier, their shadows don't fit their movements. Interesting. After Scarlet kills the Yankee soldier, Melanie removes her nightgown intended to use it to clean up the blood. She is supposed to be nude. In the newly remastered version, Melanie is clearly wearing a bra, which didn't exist until the early 1900s. <laughs> Interesting. When the war is over, everyone at Terra runs into the front hall. We see Melanie running down with empty arms, and the next shot, she is holding her baby. So, Terrence, I cut down the notes, so we have come to the end of Gone with the Wind. Yeah. So, let's let's hear your opinions on this movie. 
Okay, so there's a couple things I'll admit. When watching this, I did fall asleep. <laughs> and this is probably the most you millennial said, thing you I've said done earlier, yet. You said earlier that you don't fall asleep during movies, remember? I know. Um, <laughs> so, and another, this is probably the, the most millennial thing I've done. Uh, because oh, no. I fell asleep at oh, some no. parts and I couldn't go back to watch it because it's so, such a long movie, uh, the parts I missed, I spark noted. No, <laughs> which is you know what? the most millennial thing. That might thing be I'll, the most millennial thing because I don't even know what that means. Yeah, so basically, what Spark Notes is—is it, is it, it like a, Cliff Notes for a book? That yeah, more or less. I mean, Spark Notes is what you'd go to if you were in class. They told you to read a book and you didn't, <laughs> so then you go to this to you know get all the highlights and stuff. So uh, because I missed some parts, um, I, I, yeah, I, I Spark Noted it. <laughs> but no, uh, it's. I would say if if romance movies are your thing, and you could look past, uh, you know, the fact that some things aren't accurately depicted, uh, and actually knowing uh, about you know the whole Oscar thing and all that other stuff, uh, I, I I can look at it in a different light, and that actually makes it better in my opinion. Um, it's a must see romance for sure. If if you like romance movies, watch Gone with the Wind. Um, but I would say if romance isn't your thing, it would be a hard sell just because it is a four-hour romance. Uh, and that would be my take on it. It, it was definitely uh, worth watching. Um, I'll probably see it in full uh, when I'm not trying to hurry up and rush to watch it, you know, because of the podcast. But, you know, when I, when I actually have some free time, I'll, I'll sit down and watch the whole thing uh, again in full. Uh, but, yeah, no, it's 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 definitely a, a must-see. It's a... a, a a historic piece, really, just because uh, what it's accomplished uh, as far as, you know, selling tickets, it's how much money it's made, uh, the actors and actresses and, uh, you know, what they've done and gone through. And uh, it's it's definitely a must-see because of those things. Would you say it deserves to be in the top ten of movies of all time? I think because of its accomplishments, it is. It does. Um and also because, you know, every sort of generation has a different sort of type of movie that they you're going to go to, right? So, like, you know, obviously this generation, it's the action movie, the comic movie. That would be what everybody's clamoring to see. At that time, it was the drama, the romance. And so uh, I, I can definitely see how it became the top. Now, nowadays, you really don't see too much romance. So it's def- if you're looking for a romance and you haven't watched it, watch it. Because this is definitely, like, the romance. This and Casablanca, right? Uh but yeah, uh, it, it, I, I say it does absolutely deserve because it, 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 you cannot look past its accomplishments. It, it, would, it 100% deserves to be on the top 10 because of those accomplishments. It's just all the stuff that did cinematography-wise yeah, yeah, and, and all that. So um, I, I, um, I didn't see this movie till later in life. But, um, you know, you, you always hear about Gone with the Wind. And I'd look up on the list. Man, what is this movie? You know? Yeah. So that's that's basically how we started this podcast. Is I was like, there, I looked up the top 100 movies of all time, and there's a bunch I haven't seen, and I wanted to know why. Yeah, these are up there. Um, so when I watched it, man, I mean, even though I was like, man, I don't know if I'm going to like this movie, and then you get so enamored in the storytelling. Yeah, you know, the storytelling is something crazy. Like Scarlett, she was crazy. Oh yeah. I mean, she always went after Ashley Wilkes, who was a married man. Exactly. And it just crushed her. But even throughout the whole film, um, even when she's getting married to other people, she still has this love for Ashley because she thinks she deserves to be with him. Yep. 
And even Ashley admits later on in the film that, you know, she's like, tell me that you love me, uh, that you don't love me. He's like, you know, she's like, I can. He's like, even for, you know, my wife and my baby, I, I won't say that, that yeah. I don't love you. And he's like, even if it's not true, he's like, I won't do that to Melanie and the baby. Yeah. So just the conflict that she goes through, the character building she goes through. But, I mean, man. Sometimes you're just like, shut up and get on with your yeah. life. You know what I mean? I, I but the say, way she portrayed yeah. the character of Scarlet was dead on. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. And then you got Rep Butler. You know, he's like the macho, macho man. He, and, and to that poor guy's thing, he was always chasing after Scarlet, who was yep. chasing after someone else. You exactly. know what I mean? And, and then finally, when she realizes... It's she, too late. Yeah. I, mean, I think it's it's probably the best depiction I've seen of you don't know what you have until it's too late. And it, it, you don't get that happy ending of like, oh, then they both come together and everything's right. No, it's no, kind it's, of a depressing it, movie it, it at is times because, you know? because of the fact that uh, it, it, it really does hit home with the realism of if you you have what what you need right in front of you, but you don't realize it, and then it, it's gone. You are not getting it back, and that's real. You know what I mean? Like in most romance and stuff, they're like, oh, no, I, I lost what was the best for me, and I didn't even know it. And then they end up winning him back, but not this time. No, it, you know, they. I mean, obviously they leave it open-ended, but still, I mean, you really expect him to move on. He's done with Scarlet yeah, at that and that's, point. That's it's what like, I look, was- I loved you, I chased you, and you kept chasing somebody else, and I have to move on yeah and you know after as many times as he tried and tried and tried and mm-hmm. he she could and then he just leaves and you're like well maybe he finally decided that hey i'm done wasting my time yeah. you know i've tried but now that you want me i don't want you, you exactly I mean? yeah but i mean just fantastic storytelling yeah. you know what i mean i would definitely say give this a watch um there is some uh, the uh racial tone um you don't really realize it, you know, unless you know the history of America and the history of movies. Um, if you're a history buff like myself, then it definitely kind of like, eh, but yeah, you but, can um, look past it. Yeah, but I mean, that's such little in the movie that this you're enamored by the story. You know what I mean? I mean, there is a screen, a uh, screen, a scene where Scarlet slaps Prissy. Yeah, you know what I mean, and I was like, because she was her maid or handmaid and whatever, yeah. and and you know, and I was just like, man, this does not even need to be in this movie, you know what I mean? But like we say, different time, different era. Yeah. So, but yeah, I I definitely say at least give it a shot at least once, um, especially it being almost four hours long. You you need to at least see it once. You can break it up over several nights if you have to. Exactly. Or catch it when you can. So, uh, with that being said, I think we're going to go ahead and do some shout outs real quick. Uh, I'd like to shout out Hillbilly Horror Stories with Jerry and Tracy Pauly. If you guys haven't listened to them and you like ghost stories and um, all kinds of hauntings, you know, yeah, um, they dive into some stories. Uh, I will warn you, though, at the beginning of their podcast, before it was his wife in there, it did get a little raunchy from like the first one through seven and one through nine or whatever. But so give them a check out because they're the one that helped me start this podcast. Also, Hillbilly Horror House with our host, uh, Tim Mullins. We played his trailer last week. Yep. Uh, and his uh, co-host, uh, Natasha Anchor. Um, them guys do some incredible work. But also, if you like video games and uh, you like to like watching streams on video games, you need to check out my friend. And he's also a co-worker. Too Drunk to Drive. That's T-W-O, <laughs> Drunk, the le- number two, Drive. He's on Twitch. Um, he plays a lot of The Hunt 
Uh, okay, so like, and he plays Apex Legends. Okay, so I play those too. Yeah, so give him a look out. He's he's uh, helping us out by putting our logo and a web uh, link to the our podcast on his stream. So if he hits a big over there, and, and he's been supporting us and you know passing the word along, I told him we throw him out here on our podcast too. And if you like video games and you haven't checked out streams. Check it out, you know. It's, right. you, you actually have a, uh, some fun. Especially Twitch has a lot of a lot of games. On it does, there too. and there's a lot of there's actually more interaction with Twitch than like like let's say watching somebody on YouTube, uh, just because Twitch does have that you know chat uh, on the side. Right. That's that, like that's like us. You can't really talk to us unless exactly it's email. But there, you 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 right chat there with them right there, and he'll be, they'll respond to yeah. you right there on the on the on the feed. You right know, it's in the middle cool. of the game. It's awesome. And then sometimes they upload those to YouTube. You know what I mean? So you'll be mm-hmm. on YouTube and all that. So keep up the good work, Jesse. Um, all right, it's time. I know the you guys have been waiting. It is time to release the special announcement. So we wanted to do something special for you guys, uh, me and my co-host here. So we have decided that starting in June, which is just next week, yep, we are going to start doing the uh, listener episodes since we've started getting a lot of that. But not only that, listener appreciation. We are also going to name June Superhero Month. So what does that mean for you, the listener? That means not only are you getting a listener story, you're also getting a superhero story every week. Uh, we are going to try to do this uh, based on schedules, but this yeah. is our plan. And my 20th wedding anniversary is in here somewhere, so we might have to record a few at a time. So if we don't read yeah. your review or something right away, we will we will get to it. Um, so there you go. We're going to be pumping out some episodes here in the next month. Um, Very it'll exciting. It'll be fun. If I can keep Terrence awake long enough, it, it doesn't spark note me or whatever he was saying. And like I said, that was, that was that's the first and probably only time I do that because that was the longest movie um, Ever. And especially because, like, romance isn't really my Really? My Would thing. you spark note Avengers Endgame? No. Okay. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> but that's a movie that I obviously wanted to see. But, right. I mean, like I said, uh, like, there's very few types of movies that I really don't chase after. Romance is one of them. There's a couple of romance to be like, okay, yeah, I liked it. But I, I typically don't. Yeah. And um, I also wanted to throw out the next movie we will be doing, and it is our first listener requested episode from Emily Iaconelli. I think, I, sorry, I didn't write down your last name, Emily. We are going to be doing, she wanted us, when we did Psycho, she's like, well, you know, Psycho's good. She's like, but my favorite Alfred Hitchcock film is Vertigo. So will we be doing Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo for episode 10? So Emily, hang on, we're, we're getting ready to do yours. And yes, Samuel, Godfather will be coming. And it would probably be at the end of the month just so I can make you wait. <laughs> so, um, you can reach us at the, if you have a request you would like us to do, you could reach us at the tragedy of cinema, all one word, at gmail.com. Uh, we are on, on uh, you can find our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, and Podbean. I'm still waiting to hear back from iHeartRadio, so hey, we're getting to that th- time where I send another email to them because, you know. Yeah. Some people just drop the ball. Yeah, absolutely. Um,. You got any final thoughts or anything at the moment, Terry? Uh, yeah, um, obviously, as always, uh, if you want to give us some feedback, feel free to email at us, uh, email us, <laughs> uh, or leave us a comment on iTunes. I believe is the only one where you can leave right. comments. Right. Um, that help. That's that's the greatest way you can help the podcast to grow. Is yeah. But the more reviews you leave on iTunes, or yep. the, the 
the higher we move up in the charts and people will be able to reach us easier. And we love hearing from you guys. Right. I mean, that's where the requests come from. Which that's even, where we get ideas. Even if you're like, well, I don't have any access to iTunes or anything, what you can do, what I want everybody to do, if everybody here would tell just one friend and get them to start listening, yep. then this podcast is going to blow up. We have already seen the numbers start to grow. I mean, we're we're closing in on 700 listens and just our little measly eight or nine episodes we have out. Exactly, which is so, awesome. Yeah, and we got international followers. Followers. Um, we even have an international request coming up. Yep. So, um, Patricia, I know you're listening, so be prepared. Yours is coming up soon. And she's all the way in Australia. I just, I want to interview yeah, her. Just, you, I'm trying to get to interview her. Is that so. supposed to be an Australian accent? No, nah, well, <laughs> well, I wasn't going to, you know. I, Pennsylvania almost. When I was, talking to, her, when I was yeah. talking to her about it, you know, what movie she wanted to do and. I was like, look, I was like, everything I know is from Crocodile Dundee <laughs> and Outback. So I like, put another shrimp on the Barbie. And she's like, oh, we got a lot of explaining to do. So yeah. I wanted her to come on and also explain, you know, the difference, you know, what we think as Americans, what Australians are. You know, I was like, what you mean you don't go outside and throw a feed kangaroos and throw boomerangs? You know what I mean? <laughs> she's like, you know what you call a boomerang that doesn't come back? I was like, well, she's like a stick. <laughs> so, so I'm kind of interested. I'd like to get her interview, get her accent on here. So, That's great. Um so, yeah, I think uh, we're, we're coming down to the close. Uh, do you have any other last minute? That's pretty much it. I mean, as always, thanks for listening. Uh, we definitely appreciate you guys. Definitely leave feedback. That helps us a lot. Uh, that's that's and, all and Thank you for putting up with us for a two-parter. Um, I cut, if Terrence was looking at my notes as I was going through. I cut out probably so much. Yeah, this this thing would have went on forever. <laughs> I mean, there's a little <laughs> so three much. four parter easily. But I went through and I went out and I got the what I thought were most interesting facts. Exactly. You know, obviously, if you want to do some research, there is a ton more. Yeah, that you can look up, especially like um, goofs or scenes in the movie. Yep, uh, and awards and just even if Terrence cut out some of the awards or nominations, just because yeah. there's so much. But we wanted to do it. I actually justice, do that a, so. a lot, just just for reference. If if we ever go across a movie and you're like, wait, you didn't get this award. A, a lot of the awards for a lot of these movies are, are like super small time, like award ceremony type things. Uh, so I, I usually just kind of gloss over those, and I like to get the bigger ones. So I mean, if if ever there's something we gloss over that you feel like should be mentioned, there's always the comment section uh, that you know other people can see. You can always leave it there. Um, or if you want to, at least like uh, when we do another episode where we recover um some facts and and whatnot like a special exactly a special bonus episode uh you can always you know comment send us an email being like hey i I think you guys should mention this okay cool yeah well then then we'll you know give a shout out to that bit fact so remember the next movie we'll be coming is the listener episode by emily vertigo so with that being said make sure you watch it before that we start talking it's a very easily accessible movie and it's it's really Jim James Stewart, Jimmy Stewart, just man, he blows me away in that movie. I and love that movie. And I had just watched it for the first time a couple days ago. Really? Yeah, I've seen it a I lot. I think I've seen a couple parts, you know, before, but yeah. never sat down and dove into it, you know, like research and watching it. Yeah, it was amazing. So, with that being said, I think we're coming to the close of the podcast. Absolutely, and that's a wrap. And also, cut, cut. <laughs>